week, another episode. Welcome to another episode of the Cusism Syracuse Sports Podcast. Alongside Jesse Cook, I'm Chilakasia Dele. You know, we had a pretty good week in the world of Syracuse sports. We had Von Reed and the women's basketball team coming with a couple wins, and the men's basketball team seeming to get it done themselves. You even had a win from the women's ice hockey team. But first, why don't we start with women's basketball? And today, winning another one. Again, this one is probably one um, that was a gimme. Uh, Central Connecticut State University, a 1-5 team. Um, Syracuse blew their socks off, 116-65, to led by a 22-point performance from Tisha Hyman. Yeah, it's a historic performance from Hyman. Almost the first quadruple-double in the history of Syracuse basketball. She put up 27 points along with, I believe, 14 assists and 11 steals. She almost had a quadruple-double. Yeah, yeah. She almost had a quadruple-double. She had eight rebounds, although I think ESPN says nine. There's a little disconnect between Cuse.com and ESPN. Well, funny story for Tisha Hyman. Not so funny for her, but because of the ESPN stats, they got it wrong initially in the middle of the game, or not middle, during the game they said she had nine rebounds. She got one more after that, thinking she had a quadruple double. But, of course, ESPN has put it up wrong. So, much to the chagrin of Tisha Hyman. She doesn't have a quadruple double, but that is the first double double in over a year and a half since January 13th of 2019. Tiana Mangakahia performed, I think, against the Tar Heels. Yeah, and you know, we learned, I think we've learned something from this team over this week because, again, they take down Central Connecticut State Sunday, but they beat Ohio State, a number 18-ranked Ohio State, by a six-point margin, 97-91, on Wednesday night. And again, Tisha Hyman had 30 points. You know, this is a team, I believe at this point, that... Maybe we're seeing a very high-powered, high-scoring offense. And is that what Von Reed is bringing to the table? Well, I wouldn't take the, the Central Connecticut game to be an example, but take the Ohio State game to be an example that, yeah, you're right. Von Reed is bringing a lot of energy to this team. I think part of that comes from him knowing that he might not have long with this team. Maybe he wants to have longer than a season, or maybe he just wants to get in the work and produce a quality product in this year and then see see where it goes. But Coach Reed, it's funny. We talk about the women's basketball team. They've got a number of great players like Chris Lynn and Christiana Carr, somehow not related, Mm -hmm. Uh, Tisha Hyman, Jay Murray, Alicia Stiles, and, of course, Priscilla Williams. And the one that we talk about is the Coach Von Reed. Uh, So I think he does bring that versatility to the offense uh, just in his coaching style. But how about Priscilla Williams lately? The weird Instagram post that she put put up about potentially redshirting, and then she took it down. There's been no comment since then from her or Cuse Athletics. So, frankly, if you're a Syracuse fan, that's a positive sight that she wants to redshirt. She wants to play longer in a Syracuse jersey after... 
last season where everyone else transferred. So I, I'm not sure what to make of that right now. Yeah, and of course, you never want to see somebody redshirt, but at the same time, you do think about that prolonged period of time. It's weird because you don't know. You're trying to read into a player's mind in a situation like that, and you're trying to read internally into not what that what it means for the player, but also for the team at large. To me, redshirting is not only a a red not a red flag. You waved a white flag when you're in distress, but. It's saying, I don't think that I'm going to get anything out of this season. And is that what she's thinking in regards to the team? Because I think personally I've gained some newfound hope in this team. And just watching this past week, again, they were expected to beat CCSU. They did by, what, 50-something points today? They did what they were supposed to do for an ACC Division I team. But we must revel in the fact that this team beat the number 18th team in the country. And I can only wonder if they build off of this, if they increase their offensive production. You know, I mean, maybe defense is a little bit of a problem. But then again, it is the fact that you're facing the 18th ranked team in the country in Ohio State. Is this a team that now, as they start to really get into the swing of things, move towards conference play, starts to get their act together and possibly has something going into the remainder of the season? They, they maybe have something. This week, I was actually talking with our, one of our guests from last week, Will Shea. Uh, this week has made me think maybe, maybe, if a lot goes exactly as planned, there's an NCAA tournament berth in Syracuse sites, and that should never be out of sight, especially this early in a season. I'm still not sold. Ohio State is a good team, but they're way better on the schedule. Again, I'm not sold. And back to the point about Priscilla Williams, I think that the red shirt, it means either there's an injury that we don't know about, or she's waiting she's waiting out Von Reed's tenure and she just wants a new coach. Or she says, Okay, my time at Syracuse is done. I want the rest the next three years to be spent somewhere else. And she wants to get the full value there. I don't think it's the last one. It wouldn't surprise me if it was, but I think more in the in the sense of professional hockey players that don't want to disclose what's really going on about about them you know, when they say they have an upper body injury and it's really they've lost their ear or something. I think there's an injury we don't know about. Well, either way, I think we've got to basically, at least here's my prediction for the future. And again, when we talk about this team, we often talk about the future, right? Because so much has happened. It's that for most of the season so far, that's all we could think about the future. I think... Now you're looking at a situation in which if Syracuse at least makes it to the tournament, I think Bon Reed keeps his job for another year, at least. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that goes without saying. If Syracuse makes the NCAA tournament in a year where they might have even missed the NIT, there is no reason that this that John Wildhack 
wouldn't want to bring Von Reed back unless there's another interpersonal problem like there was with Quentin Hilfman. Yeah, it just it wouldn't make any sense at all from that standpoint, you know. Um, Are we going to start seeing Von Reed at Wegmans? Uh, Are we going to get a good 40 years here? Well, maybe. You never know. But it, it all depends on how this team plays. I think they've started, like we just talked about, they've started to really get in the offensive swing of things, maybe clean up a couple things on defense a little bit. And I think you've got something, you know. And I think there are also some of these players on this team that have uh, – some experience too when I think that also goes to show that also goes to help as well despite the fact that it is so depleted from last year despite the fact that it is so mismatched from last year right now what I'm starting to see is a gel and gelling is good gelling is definitely good I, I guess because we were worried about chemistry for this team uh, after the loss to UConn that ended the last season, without any thought of what might be going on in the locker room, Syracuse fans were really hopeful. Camilla Cardoso, Kiara Lewis are going to be back. Really, it's uh, Priscilla Williams is the only... I'm really glad she's back because without her, none of our players of the week from last season, which had a lot of women's be- uh, members of the women's team uh, on the cover there, would be back in uniform, and that happened with the men's team a lot too, like Kadari Richmond, Quincy Garrier, and uh, Alan Griffin all booking booking it. At least there's still some continuity when you get Buddy Bayheim and Priscilla Williams back in that lineup. So I'm I'm very glad for for that part. And yeah, as you said, there's there's chemistry building up again. Yeah, and you love to see it. Now, let's segue into. Um, what was a very eventful weekend for the men, and we kind of... Man, I wish I was at that Indiana game. I was in studio I was going to say, that. I was going to say, why don't we, instead of going from the most recent game back like we did for the women, we go and climb up, because that was really <laughs> the pinnacle. You know, Saturday's game, even though Syracuse won, let's preface it by saying it was ugly. It was an ugly win. Yeah, the FSU done. game? Yes. It wasn't that ugly. I, I thought mean, you still had Joe Girard and Cole Swider putting up double digits along with Buddy Beheim. I think, I think Sy- the ugly thing is you want to see more Buddy, but hey, the the fact that Cole Swider is getting those high point totals coming up to that Jimmy V Classic against his alma mater in Villanova is really promising to me. It, granted, granted, it was FSU shot horribly, but SU also had to claw back out of that one. But... Let's let's talk about Indiana. Well, that that's the difference between the FSU game and Indiana is FSU. Okay, I, I'll admit you are right. It wasn't the Orange's best game. I don't think it's as bad as you think. But FSU let Syracuse come back in that game mm-hmm. on multiple occasions, and Syracuse let them make their little push at the end as well. What makes the Indiana game different is you can look at a double overtime game between a team like Syracuse and a highly thought of team like the Hoosiers. And think, well, clearly it must have not been Indiana's day. Well, it was. Some of their highest shooting percentage and three-point percentage totals, as well as rebounds on the entire season, went into that game. And Syracuse stuck right with them. You saw shots from who else? But Joe Girard, probably the person we've been most bipolar about on this show Mm -hmm. over the last 
over a year now. I mean, the most our bi- first episode we were criticizing him. The most bipolar athlete in terms of how people think about him, probably in Central New York at this point. Well, I think that's changed. You, just look at his headshot from last year compared to this year. Look, I'm not gonna not gonna shame anyone for for looks, but athletes should be in a certain shape, especially when they're on, when they're on the basketball court. And Joe Girard looked a lot wider in his 28, 2020 headshot than he does in his 2021. He looks like he did in his freshman year, in his high in high school when he was a prodigy. He's back in that shape. Sure, he's still probably prone to the same mistakes, and his athleticism is still ramping back up. But we're starting to see prime Joe Girard. His three-point percentages are above 50. Can you believe that? That's one of the best in the ACC, one of the best in the country. And you want to talk about best, talk about Jesse Edwards as well. His, he has the best shooting percentage in all of college basketball. I think that's probably easier when all of his shots are coming from inside the paint. But still, star status, we're talking about first-team All-ACC for some of these guys, not even including Buddy, who, by the way, probably is still the best player on this team. Yeah, and listen, I think Tuesday's game was a test of mental toughness. And that's an easy thing to say, but it genuinely was, in my opinion. Here's the deal, right? You're up 16 at the half. You choke that up in the second half. You know, you're just eking it out there. And you get a tough foul call on that last play of the second half that allowed Indiana to come back in. And then you go to overtime. That ends in a tie. You go into double overtime. So what you've got to think about now is what do you do when you thought the game was flowing well, you you thought everything was free-flowing, and stuff goes wrong, you know. Everything hits the fan. Crap hits the fan. What did the Orange do? They didn't wail, didn't falter. They stayed right there with IU, and they ended up winning this game, and they eked it out by two, but they won. And Tuesday's game was a good character win, you know. I think wins like that, I mean— Sure, the blowout wins are good, and the buzzer beater threes are good, and all of that, but sometimes you need a game like this to help build your team, and I think that's exactly what it was for the Orange. This game changed a lot of people's minds about this team. When they're losing to Colgate and VCU and almost letting Arizona State come back, there's problems. But when you're taking down the Hoosiers, when you're taking down the Seminoles, regardless of the quality of the game, something has changed. And not to mention earlier in the week when they had, I mean, Arizona State, they let them come back, but that's still a good win. And the Auburn game, not Syracuse's finest hour, but that's not a game you expect them to win, and they played reasonably well. So coming into the Indiana game and going, hey, we've got a chance in this thing, let's Let's pop. And they were down by significant numbers and brought it back all the way to the end. FSU, they went down and they came back. This is a team of fighters now that I was extremely pessimistic about. 
a while ago, but they here we are. Here we are. And I like to think that going into the next game, maybe there's something that says win streak. Maybe there's something that says we build this beyond three games. Maybe there's something that says, why don't we turn this into a season-defining run that could change the national narrative that could change the narrative about Syracuse and put the orange on the national map. Here's the thing. I think a lot of people slept on this team going into the season. Including me. I think a lot of people had been sleeping on this team. And in some cases, I guess it was justified. Like, you can't let Colgate beat you by uh, 15 points and put up a hundo on you. But I'll say that there are a lot of people who doubted this team early. And I think this is all we needed. We needed time, you know. And now we've started to see... That with time, this team is gelling together. Um, we had some players who were shaky, you know, like Cole Swider, Joe Girard, a little bit streaky. But now I think you're going to start to see at least one of them come consistently and at a time. And here's the thing, right? Here's the thing with basketball. Not every player is going to be hitting on every cylinder, on all cylinders every time. That's certainly been the case for this team in the past. That's certainly been the case for this team this season. You know, you've got the Bayheims who seem to be just coming away with everything every game. But like I said, players like Gerard, players like Cole Swider have struggled at times this season. So it's just going to be that's life. That's basketball. And now I think you're going to start to see some of these games in which the Orange start to come in and shoot really well. And the other thing that the Orange do have to worry about still in my opinion, is defense. And that's something that we've been talking about all season. You know, Saturday's game was a low-scoring game, but it's also, you also have to admit that FSU, especially down the stretch, shot terribly. And that's ultimately what I think did them in. It helps. It helps that FSU, that, that Florida State had bad shooting numbers near the end of the game. But still, what, what did them in is that the Orange outlasted them. I I think that this team has finally learned how to play their opponent. And what that means is, look, they put up 63 on Florida State. And they put up astonishingly more on Indiana. So they know how to play their opponent. They they know how to watch the video and they know how to learn from it. I, don't, I should say it doesn't surprise us that Jim Beheim has that fortitude about him and about his program but again we were not expecting this let's also be honest though and say that let's say that the orange nor florida state shot well they didn't really shoot well you know uh syracuse shot just about 35 percent from the three they were 30 percent from uh, beyond the arc, Florida State just did worse. It's funny. Syracuse and Florida State both have the exact same field goal percentage at 34.9%. Where it was different, one, is that, and look, if you look at the field goals, both teams on Saturday were 22 for 63. They shot the exact 
same amount of shots from the field and ended up with the exact same percentage. Well, Where wait, they wait. went wrong... Well, how many of those were from beyond the arc, though? Because sometimes that can be the major difference. Is uh, like with the Colgate game, where Colgate was just hitting those shots. From but that's where I was getting to. Oh, oh, oh! I'm sorry. I'm Nostradamus here. Don't don't rush me. Don't rush me. I'm got... sorry. Chile is very methodical. Yeah, I'm, I'm more just just Jesse's big. He likes to fire. He likes to just fire <laughs> out. I, I if you watch the podcast or listen to the podcast, okay, excuse Mike me. Stro, condu- you know conduct, that get, I like to draw back, out my uh, points. What, what is it, legato or like? I come from I don't a music know. family. I, don't know I, sh- about I music. should know which one is slower, but I'll, I'll I'll make my voice piano and you can get forte. But this is what happened. Okay. Both teams had the exact same amount of shots. They were both 22-63 from the field, but the three points made the difference, you know. Florida State was four for 30, an abysmal four for 30 from three. That's 13%, just over 13% shooting, while Syracuse slightly better at nine of 30. That's 30% of their shots from yeah. beyond the arc, from range, that went in. That's some fast math. What? Like you, you got it right away. Like the, the, the four for thirty and nine for thirty. I, I know. That that's just fast math. I, I don't expect. Well, that. I mean, ESPN. We're journalists. ESPN. We don't help. come here to play school. ESPN helped me with the Florida State one. The Syracuse one, I just knew. Man, just had it. That's easy. Staples. I don't. I don't know. I, I can't get past like, what 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 comes after two. Three. Oh. Are you sure? Yes. Damn. Knew there was a reason I failed elementary school math. That's problematic. Yo, second grade, best five years of my life. <laughs> this is too much. But this is my life. But it's my life, Jelay. But digressing to to the task at hand. My childhood trauma. I think I think you fans out there will be absolutely um, excited to know that the Orange will play Villanova on Tuesday night at Madison Square Garden. You're excited for that. You're a Nova fan. I am. I am. And listen, I'm going to be fair here. I'm going to be objective. I'm going to be fair and objective, balanced, and tell you <laughs> that the Orange have a legitimate chance of winning this game. How they're playing right now, they're coming off two wins, two gutsy wins, despite them not playing too well on Saturday. And Villanova is a team that's top-ranked in the country, but it can falter as well. I think Cole Swider knows what this team is going to bring, having played there, you know, having performed pretty decent for the minutes he got under Jay Wright. But this is a team... Where Syracuse could either do well, force them to try and take mid-range jumpers, force them to try and get in the paint and play good defense, or, listen, Villanova, here's the thing with them. All their players know how to shoot the three, and they know how to shoot the three well. This has always been the case for Villanova. You're big men on Villanova know how to shoot the three really well. So the key for Syracuse, I think personally, is trying to make sure that you keep them in that mid-range game 
and play good defense there because we've seen that this is not a very good team defending from the arc. So are you saying that Syracuse should really just let them pound the paint? I'd say so. I'd say I'd say the Orange are a better defensive team in the paint than they are from beyond the arc, and I think that showed. Well, Jesse Jesse Edwards is a he's a spider web down there. He catches everything. Do you really want do, does letting Villanova have a better chance in the paint mean taking Jesse Edwards off the floor? Because Jesse Edwards has been a fantastic offensive player, but that's the type of time where you would get Benny Williams some reps because he's proven he can put up some points. Granted, not in anywhere near the same numbers as Jesse Edwards, but if you want to have a greater presence around the arc, does that mean you get someone faster who's going to be able to keep up with players as they're darting back and forth from the from thirty feet from thirty feet out? I don't think so, per se. Um, really, this could be Simon Torrance's time to ch- time to shine if you want someone who's going to be faster. I don't think it's necessary, though. I think that the team, like I said, the philosophy that I want for them is to be able to play inside, play inside the paint, be able to protect those long-range shots or the and force them to take those short-range jumpers and whatnot. Now, that's one of the violent things, like I've said about Villanova, they are such a great shooting team from range, so it could be problematic for the Orange there. I don't think it requires any huge changes in the lineup in terms of size, in terms of speed, but I could totally see a scenario like that. Here's the other thing you could do. Syracuse could just really practice hard on how to defend the three ball, something that they haven't really been able to do for the most part. And let's not say the statistics from Saturday's game against Florida State are any good indicator that this team all of a sudden knows how to defend the three ball because they still don't. Um, and even it's not even necessarily from completely beyond the arc. Those long-range jumpers from right inside, you know, long Mid twos, that's also something where Syracuse has had trouble defending as well. And they've had trouble defending those types of shots against bad teams or teams that are not on their caliber, like Drexel. You know, Syracuse was very good inside the paint of keeping them away from the cup. But those mid range jumpers, those three pointers, Syracuse had no answer. And that's why they were up one at halftime. I think going into this game, you've mentioned a good point. There could be some things that Jim Beheim can do to help uh, maneuver this team and better prepare them to face this Villanova team. But it just starts with, one, defending the arc, and two, possibly forcing Villanova to go away from what makes them so good and what makes them so potent which is their team's uniform, almost uniform ability to shoot the three. And that's also something that's rare. And that's why Jay Wright constantly is one of the best coaches in the NBA, excuse me, in college basketball. Yeah, give, give me a double take there. Listen, listen, if I, you know what I was thinking about that time? I was thinking about every single time there's a coaching change uh, in the NBA, and specifically when Brett Brown got uh, fired by the Sixers, everybody was like, oh, man, Jay Wright, are you going to be the next coach of the Sixers? 
The man gets asked this question so often in Philadelphia. It's not even funny. He has to be like, all right, I'm staying here, guys. I'm not I'm not going to the NBA. Hey, yo, after watching Urban Meyer go from college football to the NFL, I don't think any college coach with a lot of success goes, yeah, professionals. That's what I want. I want to completely change my style, get a completely new roster of players, and try to work there at the highest level where I'll be under the most scrutiny. But here's the thing with Jay Wright. Jay Wright has an extremely comfortable life right now. Exactly. He won two national championships in recent years. Okay. He's been to March Madness so many times. The man makes a handsome sum of money. He lives in one of the nicest areas in the Philadelphia area. You know, he is set, and I think he's going to be at Villanova for the rest of his coaching career, obviously. He should be. Unless something drastically changes because he's got a lot of time left. I, I he's, a pretty, he's a pretty young guy. Yeah. Unless something drastic changes, he's not going to make any change. There's not going to be any reaction because there's nothing to warrant any reaction. And I think that's the case with a lot of college coaches. Why do you think Jim Beheim has been the, the coach of the Orange for over 40 years? You don't think he's ever gotten a, a professional offer, especially after that 2003 season? I mean, sure, Carmelo Anthony is probably most responsible for that 2003 championship season. But there's a reason that Jim Beheim is still in the 3-1-5. And here's the thing, too, that Jim, excuse me, Jay Wright, he has been able to recruit players locally so well over the years that it has benefited him in some of the best ways possible. If you look at players like Ryan Archidiacono, you know, Colin Gillespie, and I'm not talking about Central New York, of course, I'm talking about Philadelphia, but this man, time and time again, you know, Demir Cosby Roundtree, able to go into some of the local schools, and I think here's the other thing, you know, we talk about high school recruiting on the show at times, uh, Philadelphia is highly slept on in the, in the high school basketball field, I believe, nationwide. Everybody talks about California. Everybody talks about, uh, what are some of the other states? Florida. New, well, New York, like the Brooklyn area. You should talk Everybody about talks it, about New York. Everybody talks about North Jersey, as always. D.C. Well, no, no, we talk about D.C. Nobody else talks about D.C. I th- no, I think people talk about D.C. No, we have to have our own. We have to have our, our little Q system centric the DMV, secret to the show. DMV is a very good. They're ours. Very good basketball region. And I think that people do acknowledge that. But Give me St. Louis for Jason Tatum. People sleep on the Philadelphia area. And the fact that Jim Beheim, excuse me, I keep on saying Jim Beheim. Listen, listen, it's 1.20 in the morning. Right now, as we're as we're uh, taping this, so if I just sound like I'm stupid, no, no wait, wait, we can't say it's one twenty. Then people are gonna think we're losers with no lives. I mean, but that's factually true. No, it. Uh, well, yeah. Oh. See. No. Three, it's three in the afternoon on a gorgeous sunny day. We're actually in. Uh, in, we're we're in Hawaii. This is a lie. Nah. But what we're saying is, <laughs> Jay Wright, time and time again is bringing local players from the Philadelphia area, and he's creating national championship caliber teams. So 
why don't more coaches look in the Philadelphia area for recruits? Because I think they're missing out. But this will be... Because no one wants to go to Philadelphia. Why not? If it won't produce success? No, I just mean in general. No. This is a lie. But... Man, if if they're producing... If every person there was was a Chillicothe Adele, then I, I think that there'd be a good a good amount of people. But there's Charlie Day. That's the stereotype about Philadelphia. That's why no one wants to go to Boston either. We don't like Boston. Say, Bill Burr grew up like 12 minutes away from me. And? Yeah. Everyone, you should love Bill Burr. I went to school down the street from the place where uh, Tina Fey went to. Okay, I do love Tina Fey. Also, Mike Shosha is from my county. Hey, he did, Mike Shosha was a 2002 World minor Series champion. Part of a he was carried to a World Series. Cap, 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 cap. Not even. Cap. Nah. Who else is from my county? I don't remember. Delaware County, Pennsylvania. What a place. It do not matter. What a place. It, a, it's nothing compared. Uzi, little Uzi from the city of Philadelphia. Well, so he had a diamond torn out of his head. So how much like him do you really want to be? I'm not saying I want to be like him. Do you really? Do you even want to be proud of him being from there? Yes. I like well, his music. Well, that that is fair. But <laughs> this is what we're talking about. <laughs> what are we talking about? I don't know. But Philadelphia is a producer of a lot. And it shallant be slept on. Shallant? Yeah. Shallant? You never heard the word shallant before? Shant. No, shallant. What? Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna. That doesn't sound right. I don't care what sounds right. That can't be right. That can't be a word. Don't let facts get in the way of a good narrative. Shant. Facts shan't get in the way of a good narrative. No, facts shallant get no. in the way of a no. good narrative. What is happening? You're making things up. I are you sure about that? Yes. All right. This conversation has gone too long. Um one more sport to get to in the end as Jesse tries to look up the word challenge in Google. Um I'm not gonna find anything. Here's the thing. Women's ice hockey what now sits at the top of college hockey. America. Okay, I looked up the word shallant, and the only thing that came up was for shant. Oh, well. Let's go. Oh, yeah, ice hockey. Yes. We were both there both games. Yes, and Friday's game was rough. The Orange couldn't put anything in the net. Um, Anna Nystrom, co-national goaltender of the month of November, was pretty solid on Friday. And she was replaced on Saturday, just giving her a day off. And the Orange were able to capitalize on that a little bit. Now, here's the thing with this team. They did a really good job on Saturday of getting pucks on net. They were hitting the traffic. Victoria Klimek, you know, I asked some questions yesterday after the game to some of the players about how important Victoria Klimek was there. She was just kind of trucked right there in front of Mercyhurst goaltender on Saturday, really making sure that they were getting some of those scrambles. And we talked to 
Citrus TV, uh, in which I'm the beat reporter, women's ice hockey beat reporter for, we talked to Brendan Knight earlier this week, and he basically said that, you know, this was going to be an ugly weekend. Syracuse was not going to score pretty. pretty. They're going to have to score ugly. And Friday you saw a lot of them, a lot of the trying to score pretty, you know, trying to make the extra pass instead of just throwing the puck on the net, see what happens. And you saw on Saturday there was a difference in that philosophy, and players like Abby Bellotney believed that they fulfilled on that what they've been talking about all week. And I think Victoria Klemek was a big part of that. Sure she was. I mean, just look at the stat sheet. She had a, a, an assist and the, the empty netter to seal it. And those are good good explanations, but or good benchmarks, I guess. But she played a real physical role in that game, too. She's one of the senior players on the team, and she acted like it. I mean, not to say that the other players didn't, but Klemek just stepped up. And I, I, I very much liked what I saw from players like Rayla Clemens yes. and Sarah Marshan, who had her goal taken away. Rayla Clemens is no doubt the best skater on this team right now. And yeah. her ability, her ability not only on the forecheck, her ability to get those loose pucks out there, you know, and her just unselfish play. You know, for her, it's just about getting after the puck, trying to score. If she can't do it on a specific point, it's getting it to somewhere else. But she chases after a lot of loose pucks for this team. And she's been, like I said, undoubtedly the best skater the Orange have right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, the way she moved, there were times when, you, you know those pictures of Steph Curry where he's got four or five guys guarding him? Mm-hmm. That's what it looked like some of the time with, with Clemens. Now, she's not the most skilled, just like handling the puck right now. That'll come as her career goes on. That'll come on. in time, yeah. But she was skating circles around Mercyhurst. There were times when there would be what looked like a completely clogged up path, and she would find it. Mm-hmm. She she would point her compass whatever direction she needed she needed it to go and backskate and do whatever. It looked easy. We were sitting there literally very at the very center, center ice, watching this, and I was just in disbelief at what she was able to do. And I'm glad I was where I was because on Friday we had it articulated to us from the broadcaster's booth just above by Brad Klein and then the next day by Trey Redfield, two, <laughs> two of our friends who happened to be fantastic play-by-play announcers, so it provided this nice, I'm not going to say a silver lining because that implies it was a cloud, but this nice... Uh, trip icing. It, it provided the icing to the cake of watching Clemens skate. Yeah, and now this team gets ready to face Princeton. And here's another thing that I talked with Brendan Knight about this week, and it was talking about the non-conference schedule for this team. You know, still an abysmal, although they're at the top of the CHA right now, still an abysmal non-conference schedule. Something that's kind of been a problem for a while. And, you know, basically, Knight basically told me it's frustrating, you know. Having this team be pretty good in the CHA, but not be able to translate that to that non-conference schedule is rough. But I think there are some takeaways that this team has 
coming out of that game, like being able to play a little bit messy. Not everything, not have everything be so about finesse, but just doing the basics right. Getting pucks on that, crowding the net, getting those rebounds. You know, rebounding is such an important thing, and I think SU's inability to crowd the net out on Friday really led to them not to be able to get those second chances. They were just going off of Dykstrom's blocker. You see a player try and reach their stick all the way out. It goes back out to center ice. You know, they need to be able to sit there, park there, and have somebody get a shot, get a little wrist reaction, get it off the blocker, and be able to tip it right back. You need that. And that's what they did. Like I said on Saturday, that needs to continue. Because this, for the most part, has been a very uh, offensively challenged team over the past week or so, couple of weeks, if you go back to their games against Vermont, you had a 1-1 tie, you had a 5-1 loss, then this past weekend, you had a 3-0 blank by the Lakers, and then you come away with a 3-1 victory, and you can see the difference in how SU played in the other games versus how SU played in this game. And that has got to continue going forward. Yeah, the the way that SU plays is it, it swayed back and forth. Someone who's been fairly constant, and I want to give a lot of props to, is Ariel DeSmet. Mm-hmm. There was no guarantee that she was even going to be the starter going into the season. Allison Small has been dealing with injuries. Amelia Van Vliet was in the conversation. And this weekend, Smet goes out and pit and plays two games with in two days, unusual for any goalie at any level. And she sure they lost on Friday, but she came out star studded on Saturday. And that's been the thing with Ariel, right? As much as she's been thrown into the situation this year, coming from a different school. And, you know, you automatically think that you're not going to be the number one person most likely going into this season just because you're a newcomer and you have a really good goalie in Allison Small, you know. But from literally after the first period of the first game this season, Ariel gets thrown in there, is calm, cool, and collected as a cucumber and continues to this day to really just show that she's one of the top goalies in the CHA, if not, in my opinion, maybe the top top two goalies in the CHA, and still also possibly be one of the greater goalies in the national conversation as well. I agree. We'll, we'll get back to that. But um, what was that analogy you used? Calm, cool, and collected as a cool, as a cucumber. Um. What? Have you never heard the saying "cool as a cucumber"? No. You know, I'm gonna say, and in, in, in a in an entirely positive way, that is a uniquely Chilicasia Dele thing to say. I said, I, lo- I love it. Just you know, <laughs> I said, a I said a couple of weeks ago. I said a couple of weeks ago that uh, you know how people say I uh, what's the fiddle analogy? played them like a fiddle yeah i said that i read somebody like a fiddle 
And they were like, oh, what? What do you mean? I'm assuming you're meaning that the way you, like, read into them was very easy. I'm like, yes. <laughs> I make my own analogies. Make your own options. I'm an analogy factory. <laughs> I crank out analogies like it's water. Water coming out of a fountain. You know. Okay. So <laughs> don't don't disrespect my analogies. But digressing from that, Ariel DeSmet has been rock solid in this role for the Orange. And you do wonder about Allison Small. You really you hope she's okay. Because it seems every single time at this point she's getting thrown out there, she's re aggravating something. You know? Well, I the last two games we saw Amelia Van Vliet on the ice during warmups and she's been a scratch for some games. Yeah. So I don't think that is a good sign for Allison Small. I think it's good that Paul Flanagan has a viable third option. But clearly there's something that we don't know that we're that we can only conjecture at. I worry about, about Amelia Van Vliet though, because here's the thing. Most likely, this is going to be hers next year. I, I hope it's going to be hers. So, here's the thing, right? You've got to be able to get those reps. And she hasn't really had that opportunity so far this season. La- last season, she, she, she got did. a few in. She and did. she played pretty well. Which is what you're wondering about this year, you know. I think I want to see more from her going forward just to get, you know, Maybe it's best. Maybe the best decision, the best thing to do right now, is let Allison Small heal up. Let her get as healthy as possible. Bring Van Bleed into that rotation, into that tandem. You know, I'd like to see that because I think for the long term viability of this team, making sure Amelia Van Bleed is equipped, and I think she is, to handle, you know, being on this team and being in a prominent role, one akin to. A solid goaltender like Allison Small or Ariel DeSmet is important. So I'd like to see her get a couple of backup starts between the pipes. Yeah, I could see that happening in some of the non-conference games. or you don't. Even if there's a game that gets out of hand one way or the other. Listen, if Allison Small is still not up to par for this weekend, I mean, I would think... And I would think that Van Vliet deserves a shot at least in one of the games against Princeton. Uh, also, just for the health of DeSmet, you don't want her possibly exactly going out there and getting injured. Exactly. So I could definitely see the sophomore getting some rep, but we, getting some, but we just some saves in. We just don't know what's up though, because that's the other part that's hard to predict. Because I don't see a situation in which if Paul Flanagan didn't think that Amelia Van Vliet was ready, that he wouldn't put her in there. Yeah, I agree. So you do wonder what's up. You do wonder if there is anything lingering for her, or maybe Paul Flanagan just doesn't think that she's ready yet. Which is the I don't think that's the case. Yeah, I don't think Paul Flanagan doesn't think she's ready yet because he would he wouldn't have played her at all last year. Then it would have been entirely. But things can also change from season to season too. It's possible for players to regress and development. I don't think that's something that really happens in this Q's program. I'm not. I'm no goal goalkeeper's coach, or, or I'm, I'm not even a hockey coach for that matter. But I think it's 
he saw the best goalie on the market out there after the Robert Morris program disbanded and said, hey, I want her. Now we've got two senior goaltenders that I can work with, and I don't need to focus on that third one. And frankly, I don't want to. If Allison Small can play, I want her to play. That's what I think is going through Paul Flanagan's mind at the moment. But one of them is injured. Well, that's, so you that's have the two. question. He's been playing her and through these injuries. Mm-hmm. So is she able to play or is she injured? Or is it somewhere in between because she has been playing? Yeah, it's something that will be very interesting to look at. And the Orange will play Princeton Friday at 6 and Saturday at 2. Usually get those Friday 7 p.m. games and Saturday 2 p.m. games. but Helping the players, you know, study for finals. That's important. And I wish I could be in the Citrus TV newsroom that day, but I won't be there that day. But the reason I wish I was there and the significance behind it is that it'll be the last Live at Six for Citrus TV's Ricky Sayer. Yeah, it's it's it'll be a weird future without Ricky reports with, with Citrus TV. Ricky was the first person, was one of the first people I met at any facet of media here in Syracuse. I think Will Scott might have been the first. It's, it's a funny story. So first week of freshman year, it's before classes or anything even started. I'm walking around the, the campus on that, it's called the Einhorn Family Walk. Yeah. And I got my mindset that, look, I'm here to be a reporter here to do journalism, news, sports, whatever. If I see someone with a camera, I'm going to go up and talk to them. And lo and behold, while I'm walking around, I see a CNY reporter, or SNY reporter, Tommy Sladek, who's now their sports director. No, you were right the first time, CNY. CNY? Yeah. There's there's a lot of acronyms around here. (laughs) Well, I saw Tommy Sladek out there with a camera doing a report. And once he finished his stand-up, I just said, hey, can I ask you a question? And... We got got talking. He connected me with a bunch of people with Citrus and WAER, and one of the first people was Ricky, and Ricky talked to me over the phone for over an hour, mm-hmm. just getting me hyped up about all these great opportunities on campus. So Ricky will all, will forever hold that place in my heart as one of the first real journalists I got to meet and one of the first colleagues that, that I made. Yeah, and... I mean, those of you who know, who are who've seen me on Citrus TV or on Twitter, have known how uh, how I not only am involved in the sports department, but in the news department as well. So very much I know Ricky, and I remember I believe they had that initiation meeting when they were bringing when they were trying to get new members on board, but it was by Zoom because of the pandemic. And Ricky and I, of course, being from Philadelphia, you know, we have a lot of the same uh, cultural things when it comes to news. And we watched the same stations and the same anchors growing up. And we really were able to sit there and have a nice long conversation after most of the people had left uh, uh, that Zoom meeting after. And that's something that has continued uh, to this day. That's something that will continue, you know. Ricky has been undoubtedly the guiding light in the Citrus TV newsroom. And 
I know we're I know those at Citrus TV are gonna still do well after him. We're gonna continue putting out uh, great news and great contact con. Uh, excuse me, content. We've got great leadership. We've got our great news director, uh, Lindsey Fine. We've got a great executive staff, general manager staff, all the way down. Um, but undoubtedly, it's going to be a big loss. And uh, we do thank Ricky for all his years of contribution to the station. Doing he might be the most enthusiastic reporter on, on the planet. And not to mention that he's just a Citrus TV ambassador. You know, like the fact that he was able to find those archives of Mike Tirico. Oh, my God. Anchoring on, what was it, Campus 7 News? UUTV. Oh, my goodness. Like, there, you'll never find somebody who cares about Citrus TV more than Ricky Sayer did. And does. 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 There's a week left, Chile. Don't march to the funeral before the casket's been filled. I mean, that's fair. But you understand what I'm saying. And that's something I think I've learned from him over my not even year and a half at the station is just the ability or not the ability, but you walk in through the doors every single day to the station. You put your card on the on the little swipe and you open the door. And you just have this gleaming pride. And you walk with your camera and your tripod and you hold up the microphone to interview somebody and you walk and you have pride. And you've covered some of the biggest events that this campus has had to do and deal with over the past how many years, whether it's uh, something revolving not again SU, whether it's something involving uh, bias incidents on campus, hate crimes on campus, from the serious stories to the most triumphant stories, the ones that make this university great, you have pride to cover these stories as a Citrus TV member, and Ricky Sayer very much is a part of why a lot of us are proud to be members of Citrus TV. Yeah, I'm not going to lie, a lot of people don't know Citrus TV, they know Ricky Reports. Yes, yes. I mean, it would not be factually incorrect to say that Ricky Reports essentially is Citrus TV, you know. And like I said, we are going to, those of us at Citrus TV are, are very grateful for his many years of contribution to our station. Uh, he's made an impact that is going to be uh, there um, way past when we leave or when he leaves. Uh, for years to come, the relationships he's built not only with people here at the station, but people outside the station. And, I mean, all we just have to say is thank you. Yep, thank you, Ricky. At what are the odds that he's actually going to hear this? I'm sure we can cut it up and put it somewhere. No, let, let, let's make Ricky page through the entire episode. Ricky does care about Syracuse sports. Ricky resports. This is true. And sometimes, uh, you know, you'll see Ricky in the front row of the student section at games. Uh, I'm gonna go again. I mean, I'm Ricky, gonna, I'm gonna get into the shtick, the, the shtick here. If you saw Ricky on vacation, he'd be on a Rick, one of his Ricky resorts. Oh no, no, we're not doing this. If he talks back, it's a we're Ricky not doing resort. This. No, we're not doing this. What happened to Ricardo Deportes? 
we're not doing this. No, oh, but but can. no, Ricky very much is an avid Philadelphia sports fan. Um, so you would say that when he's watching his teams do badly, his face becomes Ricky contorts. No more. No yes. more. I was hoping that we would avoid these puns, but uh, they're here. So if you got them away, it would really be to you a Ricky comfor- uh, all comforts. All right. All right. All right. A little bit down. No. A little bit down. But, yeah, uh, Ricky, we thank you for all your years of contribution, service to the station. And, uh, of course, we do this podcast as individuals outside of the Citrus TV sphere, but we do acknowledge that we're very much a part of it as well. And uh, we thought it was only right to end the show this way and thank one of the people who's been most influential in our media careers so far, even though we're just college kids. So influential. Yeah, it's... I don't think I'd be in the position that I am with the opportunities given to me here at this university without Ricky. So really, I'm thankful to him for all these sorts of... uh, It's weird. He's telling me to be a better journalist, and here I am at a loss for words. Yeah. Ricky, thank you again, and we'll see you guys next time.